Welcome, everyone, to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment, even in weeks when it's difficult to talk about entertainment. I'm one of your hosts, Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Carl, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay for this week, I think. We, <laughs> speaking of entertainment, though, like I have been watching or I watched cable news for the first time in forever on Tuesday is all of this stuff with the Capitol went down. Like it was the throwback. I mean, between Tuesday with the runoffs in Georgia and Wednesday, like, yeah, good ratings for MSNBC and CNN. Yeah. Just, yeah, I think it was CNN's most watched day in history, which kind of surprised me actually. Like, do that many people our age have access to CNN without like parents' cables accounts or something? Are they lumping in like online, like YouTube TV views and whatnot too? Like, I'm just I wonder where that's yeah. coming from. I don't know. I have YouTube TV, so I, I do have. I'm maybe one of the only millennials maybe. with CNN. I don't know. <laughs> but that this whole thing we're going through this week is obviously going to be a um, topic. That we don't need to talk about right now. This is going to be an escape from the uh, impending and crushing doom and gloom that's encapsulating everything right now. And we'll talk about what we're looking forward to this year in entertainment. Uh, we have a lot of kind of swing for the fences pitches, batting. I don't know what the proper sports oh, metaphor is. Are you trying is to there. make a sports metaphor? Thank you. <laughs> Damn it. I was going to be proud for a second, but that didn't last. <laughs> But and I have to say, we're going to throw them, we're going to swing at them, but we don't know what each other is going to say. So we're going to be reacting live to um, how bold we get. Yeah, it might not be that bold. We might have the exact same uh, yes. ideas here. That would be funny. Eitan and I are also experimenting this week with recording before we uh, release or with significant lead time. Because typically we'll record, we both have kind of producing and editing duties here and we, we trade off and usually it's kind of like a two-day turnaround from record to to publishing and this week we're giving ourselves some more lead time uh, to have some more space next week so that's all to say if stuff develops in media or entertainment or the news and we didn't cover it when it feels like we should have that's why we're giving uh, yeah. some extra space this week We'll do it next week. If something develops and doesn't get stuck in development. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get, let's get started. Before the predictions, just some very quick things we wanted to touch on. The first thing, last week we shared that there was this announcement that Roku was interested in buying Quibi's catalog. And how, even though it might not make sense at first sight, that's what I shared. It actually makes quite a lot of sense, which is what Carl said. And this week we have some news that it's official and that Roku is buying Quibi for, quote, significantly less than $100 million. Which means, uh, Carl, who, who was closer to the prediction from last week? I don't remember. It was you. Hey, you blindsided me with that that question, though. I had to come up with, what, what was it? I think I said quarter of a billion and you said 50 to 100 million. Yep. Yeah. Good job. You properly assessed how little Quibi was worth. Congrats. 
Right. It would be so interesting to see the financial models and see how the value assigned to like a golden arm and to uh, Christopher <laughs> Waltz following a Hemsworth for a day trying to kill him, etc. Hey, I mean, it's a steal for Roku. In the end, this is about a billion to two billion dollars worth of development and salaries and production costs and everything for hundreds of hours of entertainment. I mean, it's a steal for something that's this modern, even though Quibi as a format never seemed to be relevant. It's going to be interesting to see how it looks online. Like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to watch a show for like an hour and see if it feels just so weird that there is a like a climax every 10 minutes <laughs> and, a, and a, I guess a, a cliff or whatever. A cliffhanger, yeah. I, I do wonder... yes. We joked about like turnstile not working on a on a TV last week. I wonder how they're going to present these. Are they going to present them as individual episodes? Mm. I imagine it's probably somewhere in like contracts or something that they're considered different episodes. So maybe they can't just stitch them all together. But I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, I would imagine different episodes, but even faster transition than like a Netflix. Like literally like a three second start again, maybe not even the title card again. And this is an ad-supported platform, so I'm sure that's where the ad break will be. That's pretty natural. Yeah, that's very natural. Uh, So we'll see. They said also coming 2021, so this year. We'll report back. Uh And uh, speaking of tech resurrections, I want to move on to our second piece of of news today, which this is one of those uh, weird gossip from Twitter things that makes the news which is that John Legere, the former CEO of T-Mobile, is offering, threatening, promising to run for office. He was always such a weird guy. (laughs) Super eccentric. It was very difficult for me to understand if it was like his persona or if it was the marketing persona. But it sounds like that's how he is, right? Yeah, truly like one of the most important figures in modern telecommunications just by how gleefully he disrupted everything like t-mobile is single-handedly responsible for the state of the telecom industry as as we know it right now where everything's like unbundled but also like secretly everything's bundled in the background where you have uh like free access that's zero rated on plans it's kind of like not quite net neutrality like it's it's bizarre it's kind of wild. Yeah. But yeah, apparently apparently he was, like uh, most of us, appalled by what happened Wednesday. And he was just like, now I'm thinking of doing something and maybe running for office. Which is a very, you know, not only is he very eccentric, but it's also very, like, privileged. And look at me, I have a megaphone. I can just say that I'm thinking of running for office and people are going to listen to me. <laughs> but Very. That's very true. Um, <laughs> hey. I will not be ever be shocked at any other person ever running for or holding office in this country again. Let's be honest. Right. Bob Iger, 2024. Mm. Oh boy. <laughs> we do fireworks in the White House every night. Yeah. No? Exit uh, the there's, there's been rumors of him being offered an ambassadorship, right? To China. To China. That oh, was a well, rumor. I mean, because of his relationship there. That's like obvious slam dunk there okay cool cool well that was quick news 
I had another thing that I want to tell our listeners because it's not oh, you did. I forgot. For them. Yep. There is this awesome YouTube channel called The Funkland that is managed by this guy called Kevin Perjurer. And he basically does like very nerdy, so write up of Carl's and Mayali, uh, kind of breakdowns, almost like documentaries of theme park related stuff from attractions to parks to literally where was the first Ferris wheel to the World's Fair. And it's very cool. And it started being called The Funkland because he used to do things of you know, attractions that don't exist anymore. But this week, he like he has a team now of volunteers that work with him, released uh, a VR version in YouTube of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the, the ex-Disney attraction where you got in a submarine and you looked out the windows and things happened. And they recreated it in VR. You can watch it on YouTube or you can download it to play on your Oculus or, or whatever. But the idea is that they are actually like creating this virtual defunct land, like this theme park of defunct attractions where you can go and see and be on them. And of course, it's uh, again, very up our alley. But if you listen to us and you care about theme parks even at all, go check it out. For now, it's only this one video. But if you watch like the first three minutes, you can see kind of the scope that what they're shooting for. And I just thought it was very cool. I did too. I I mean, I've never been on the ride 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I know that the final like, climactic set piece is that there's a, a big um, giant squid. I'm not sure if that's the exact name of what they call it in that book yeah. slash the Disney movie, but um, it's attacking a submarine and it's this like wacky underwater electro um, animatronic thing. And so I skip right to the climax. I was like, hey, it's there. Cool. I can see this thing that I've heard about but never seen like it's really interesting as far as um the like archival value of it right and that's how they approach it they say it's a volunteers and they are uh, you know it includes a couple of copyrighted things like some music but they say this is fair use yeah. for archival and preservation issues and it's pretty great non-profit the link is there if you want to download the vr version so no. pretty cool good job kevin hey it's, it's perfect and i think it's a at least the ride ride throughs are pretty interesting, and I think that's a really cool use of the VR format. And and also just I don't know, I would watch ride through videos if they were shot in three sixty VR. Honestly, be cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are we ready to do some bold predictions? We are. Uh, I'm going to take the first one because it's building off of the Quibi story a little bit. Okay. So actually, it's not building off of it at all. It's thematically tangentially related, but that's enough of a segue for me. <laughs> it's about entertainment. Ex- so I'm gonna take time. Go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All of mine are about entertainment. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the first one is kind of spurred on by something I said last week, which was that TikTok inadvertently supplanted the quippy model for content and consumption of content, which is. Uh, kind of a fire hose of shorter form content uh, but TikToks is is user generated so therefore it's cheaper to, to create um, it's also more organic in that way and it, it's short even shorter format so you can watch a lot more of it and it can kind of learn your taste uh, so what I think is going to happen is uh, that we're going to see more and more kind of branded long form TikTok narratives so that's kind of like 
a lot of stuff encapsulated in there. Uh, but look at something like the Ratatouille musical on uh, TikTok. Mm-hmm. Have you seen stuff about this? Did yeah, you watch I've it? I've heard about it. And I didn't watch the one that was recreated by like actual Broadway actors. Yeah. But yeah, I'm familiar with the concept and have seen some of the original TikTok clips. I did not watch it either. I I don't know if I will. I'm, I'm not here for like the Zoom format as we talked about uh, on our <laughs> year-end wrap where I gave... <laughs> I can't believe I gave the 30 Rock special an honorable mention. It's not worth that. That was that was too much. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, you can go delete it from the blog post if you want. Uh, it's up there. My friend Hannah called me out on it because she's, she read through the blog post and she was like, yeah, I can't believe you even talked about it. I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. But the for those of you that don't know, the Ratatouille musical is essentially just like a weird, one of the weird COVID quarantine hobbies of people on tiktok where um essentially there was somebody who was singing like a song that was kind of to the tune of le festine and that got grafted onto a video from ratatouille and just before anybody knew it all sorts of people from all over tiktok were kind of creating musical numbers and scenes and bits of a musical for the movie ratatouille um which disney ate up because I mean, there's no the literally the only like cross promotional opportunity with Disney is that there's a Paris Pavilion in Epcot and they can do Remy the Rat stuff there, and there's a Parisian Disney Park. There's not like a whole lot of merch to be found, and like no kids don't yeah. like Ratatouille. I mean, what's better than people doing marketing for you? Exactly. Because I think we should say that Disney come out explicitly and say this is fine. Like, enjoy. This is fun. Right. Like, we're not going to go after anyone for copyright or this is great. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, this is the same company that also sued a PTA for showing a Blu-ray of The Lion King, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of just luck that this ended up being something that happened. But that's kind of also like the magic of TikTok is that uh, it's repurposing at least music rights a lot of times in interesting and clever ways and people creating I think brand perceptions and more organic content based off of other mediums. It's this kind of like hodgepodge of stuff. So do you, yeah, go ahead. I want to dig, dig deep into your, into your bold prediction. So there's going to be more long form content. Is it still going to be in TikTok? Is it going to make its way somewhere yeah. else? So by long form content, what I'm, what I'm saying here is that, uh, what I think is going to happen is that people are going to be telling longer and longer narratives on TikTok, which they are already doing. Like people uh, continuing stories over a longer period of time and you can kind of tune in and whatnot. Kind of, kind of more of a hybrid of like Quibi's idea of having short stuff that's serialized and also kind of like what Snapchat inadvertently did with, has been doing with their like content plays and whatnot. Um, but I think TikTok's going to be uniquely successful because they do have these branded relationships. People are genuinely excited and it is so like creator driven. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's a great way of like incubating creators and whatnot. So I don't know, think of, think of this as a like simplified version of the stupid Coca-Cola ads in front of a movie where some student filmmakers got to make a, an ad about somebody buying popcorn. <laughs> That's what I think this is like. Oh yeah, we'll give you the rights to make like some Ratatouille thing or contribute to it, and then here we go. Or like I don't know, get 
Steven Spielberg and Guillermo del Toro to take their aborted Quibi projects and, like, write them for a TikTok format or something. I think there's ways of, like, creating monetizable moments and content and, like, campaigns that haven't been exploited that also, like, kind of masquerade as content. I think that makes a lot of sense. I can see that. Then TikTok, we haven't talked about TikTok kind of in depth, mostly because I didn't start using it until, like, a month ago. But I have to say, like, it's changed completely my mind about it. Like, when we think of, you were just saying, right? Uh, TikTok very easily took the place of Quibi in the, in terms of, like, very quick content that gets uh, consumed very easily, very quickly, very organic, literally swipe up, amazing algorithm, very fun. And then you start thinking, like, people say, well, but TikTok versus Snapchat versus Facebook versus Instagram and... I think TikTok is at the same level as Instagram in coming with something new, significantly more than mm-hmm. Snapchat, and taking the job. I, I don't know if I would use like the job to be done analogy, but the reasons why people go to TikTok are very different than the reasons go to Snapchat, and there are more reasons to go to TikTok than to Snapchat, and the things that TikTok yeah. replaces, it's more than the things that Snapchat replaces, and there is just something even versus YouTube which I think is goes to your point, right? When you think of creators in YouTube, most of them now are like very premium, like right. very high-end, great production, great music, beautiful studios. And while TikTok has a lot of, like some of these things are happening, most of it is like quick cut. It's like on your phone, it's quick, it's going to be a dance, even the things that have like transitions, but it's like all the time, very quickly, a ton. And it's just, it's fun and it feels different. So I can, I can see that. I, I like yeah. your take. And it's very similar to, I mean, the ethos of at least the fictional Facebook from the social network where it's like, we don't want to do necessarily ads or like kind of corrupt the user experience because it's fun and cool right now. And that's definitely where TikTok's been so far is um, they don't really have like a creator payment strategy. They don't really have an ad strategy, at least publicly yet. Um, They're doing activations kind of like, connecting influencers and uh, with brands and whatnot uh, and starting to do more and more branded TikToks, but not like really to a far extent. Um, they only have like, they have something called a creator's fund that they pay out of, which mm-hmm. is like a billion to 2 billion. I think it's up to 2 billion now, which is something, but it's not like a direct payout based on the ads that you're ad revenue. You're generating like a platform like mm-hmm. YouTube, which is really where I think creators are going to are still going right now for from a high budget or premium perspective like you said because that is where they can actually get like some sort of financial return that's scalable right i think it's also the other thing that's interesting versus a you well i guess this also happens in youtube but maybe you don't get exposed but in the last month of me using tiktok i'm People say that there are different TikToks. It's just what the algorithm sends you to, right? So I'm on I'm on Disney TikTok. Yeah. And I'm on Silly Dance's TikTok because I like TikTok. But I'm also like personal finance TikTok. Mm-hmm. And there is so much stuff that is just false or misleading mm-hmm. or pyramid schemes. And it's like non-managed at all. Yeah. Which again, on YouTube, I was going to say that that one has a little bit more management, but not really. So it's going to be interesting to see to your take if it's going to just become content in terms that is like, a story we're gonna you know it's drama it's or dramatic in the sense of you know telling a story versus i don't know 
you know, Charles Schwab or JP Morgan bring right. someone to explain something. So, but th- there's definitely a channel for that. No, I think just it is a wild west, just like the early days of YouTube, and people aren't really sure what to do yet. And I do know that like agencies are very excited about this because agencies are like brokering TikTok deals now and everything. And um, TikTok's trying to do that in house. And the next year is really going to be a battlefield to see like what this platform turns into. But I solidly do think it is like a creative platform on the, on the scale of a YouTube that's just taking off versus, you know, a Snapchat or, and Instagram, obviously Instagram's successful, but it's different. It's, yeah, I agree. It's different. Instagram, I, I bemoan calling, I, I'm not, I don't quite call Instagram as, as much a creative platform as a YouTube, but. Influencer, but not content. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Like obviously there's photography and whatnot. Okay, it's a creative platform. It's just not a f- creative platform based on video, so it's different. Okay. Fair. Well, that's a good one. Of course, the first bull take. Yeah. Here's my first one. HBO Max is going to reverse their decision for day and date in May. Okay. For the rest of the year. What's in May? Like, what's what's the, the May drop there for you? So, I'm going to tell you why I think this is going to happen. And that your question is the last thing I'm going to answer. The first thing, HBO Max is realizing that there is significantly too much trouble and drama with their announcement. Some warranted, like we've talked about, mm-hmm. about unions and contracts. Some unwarranted, like Christopher Nolan and Dennis Villeneuve thinking they are the keepers of what cinema is. But there is trouble and there is drama. And they are able to deal with it because at the end of the day, they pay for things. But this can mean something. The second one is that they are going to realize that they don't need a year worth of content to reach the amount of users that they want. Mm. If Wonder Woman showed something, is that this is going to work. The third one is that theaters are going to start coming back, even if very slowly, to make the first month that they would be in theaters a bad idea. If it was a second one or a third idea, I could say it. And then the third one is exactly what your question is. Starting from May, these are the question the, the movies that they have. They have Godzilla vs. Kong. They have In the Heights. They have Space Jam with LeBron James. They have Dune. They have Matrix 4. And they have Suicide Squad. Yeah. That's a ridiculous back of the year catalog. That is, I mean, most of what I was in my mind thinking about whenever... I was thinking about 2021 for Warner. Okay, yeah. I agree with the... It's also... It's also, if I recall, after Disney has pushed Black Widow into proper theaters, correct? Yep. Right now, Black Widow is for May 7th, 2021. Mm. Yeah. You got Bond in April, Black Widow in May. I'm not sure if we'll if those will necessarily be huge in theaters. I don't think they're going to get pushed again, especially not MGM. I think MGM's going to be hurting too much to, to push it again after another marketing rollout. No, they're not. They're going to keep it. So I think at that point, theaters 
it'll be pretty obvious the theaters are doing well or not, and that can inform the decision. But to your point, I think as they go deeper into next year and deeper into people being vaccinated and whatnot, they're absolutely not going to want to lose out on the potential revenue of, of these films. The opposite side of the coin is that the slate that they have between now and May, it's actually not that strong. They have uh, The Little Things with Denzel Washington and Remy Malik, Jared Leto at the end of January, Judas and the Black Messiah, Daniel Kaluuya, mm-hmm. Lakeith Steinfeld. They have the Tom and Jerry one, which fine. The Many Saints of New of Newark, the um, backstory of The Sopranos. And I think there is another one called Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson and Tandy Newton that I've never heard about, but just with this cast I want to watch. But there aren't as brand names as the ones in the back half of the okay. year. So yeah, the, the one point of yours I wanted to refute is that uh, they're going to realize that they Go don't it. need this for subscribers. And I was going to suggest that one that could just be a like, this could just be, it was the first time something like this was done. So it was exciting and it was a particularly exciting release. So it was inflated in the way like Trolls 2, or not Troll, Trolls 2, Trolls World Trolls. Tour. Trolls World Tour. Well, I, yeah. I, I know that there's, I mean, there's Troll 2, the bad movie. And then I was like, Trolls 2, is that the real thing? Got confused. <laughs> Trolls World Tour was, I think, overinflated by, um, just kind of a, a hunger in the early days of quarantine for something new for families. I've, it no other pivot release has been that successful since. Um, and none of these movies are movies that are going to make somebody sign up for HBO Max to watch. Like it might make you or I sign up to watch, but not like the scale of Wonder Woman or something from Lin-Manuel Miranda or Dune, like. Listen, it wouldn't yeah. be a bold take if it was obvious, right? So I'll take it. I agree with most of those things. Okay. I think the biggest thing that I've realized over the last month is that HBO Max is probably the streaming platform where I've spent the most time in the last month. It has mm-hmm. an amazing catalog. And as soon as people realize, hopefully they're going to stay. So, yeah, we'll see. This And this is despite the user interface being like, unusable sometimes with the fact that i have to reload multiple times watching a movie but the content is so good that i am willing to sit like work through that 100 percent. which side note before going to your second one do you see the news today that apparently there was this so hbo max finally made it to amazon fire and roku that in amazon fire part of the deal was around warner i don't know if warner media or at&t broadly to buy more aws Hmm. that's funny which is mm-hmm. when you're a huge company you can take from one side and put on another i guess anyway yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's one of the interesting things there is that at&t doesn't really have a cloud competency that's something that they were certainly trying to develop at times over the last decade but just never really got there um at&t before the Warner and DirecTV acquisitions was definitely like in danger of being just a dumb pipes company shuttling data from server to server without any any skin in the game. So this positioned them beyond that. But yeah, they are reliant on competitors and people that kind of don't want to see their platform succeed for stuff like cloud. It's crazy. Such an interesting area to have a podcast about, right? <laughs> I mean, 
our podcast at times is just like i mean today has been telecom central right like that's kind of the nice thing about having our vaguely defined topic is we can <laughs> riff on anything that touches anything yeah let's see what's your second bold prediction maybe it's uh, hmm. not telecom related hey this is building off of the uh mgm probably can't survive much longer take which is that i'm going to float that MGM is going to merge with a theater chain in the next year. Okay. So, so not with a so they're not going to get bought by like an Amazon or a right. Apple or yeah. someone like Which, that. Which okay. Okay. Let's be honest. That's probably what's going to happen. It's probably going to be like an Amazon or an Apple or <laughs> something. <laughs> but Carlos, stop doing ASMR. This is bold takes. Come on, bold take. <laughs> Should we have an ASMR? Let's do an ASMR episode. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> no. Sorry, but from a bold takes perspective, I am convinced that, I mean, I'm already convinced that theater, theatrical distribution is a great pipeline for extra revenues, especially when you don't have to pay the surcharge of paying a distributor because you own the theater. If a studio can take home 100% of the ticket price, then it, it makes the economics a lot more favorable for content producers. So by vertically integrating from um, a, with a, a content library with theaters, um, there's just some synergies there. Obviously, MGM's not the largest library, so my guess would be something. It would be something like Regal, where it's a chain that's certainly a large chain, but kind of a smaller thing. So they're trying to have like a content library. They're just trying to play and trying to survive. Um, it would have to be a merger though, because basically the market cap of MGM is the same as the market cap of pretty much every theater chain, at least in the, the, the big ones. So I don't know. It, it could be, I could make an argument that it could be like an Alamo draft house where they already have like neon and they're friendly and have, have content as well. But now we're going to go like, like for like yeah. weird studio brand with weird theater brand yeah i see that also versus alamo i mean mgm might not make that many movies but they need wide distribution correct not enough yeah exactly okay and see that's the thing that's the, the value prop for mgm is mgm's value prop is the library and bond bond is what like keeps them afloat year to year you got the rocky stuff in there but for the most part mgm hasn't really put out that much high super high quality content but i mean they have the greatest musicals ever made so yeah and with the age with the rocky you mentioned i remember we were watching something and somebody made an adrian reference and had to explain it to ariella so that tells you how much <laughs> that brand is alive and well with uh, millennials that's fun that's fun are you ready for my second one yeah i am so my second one is Disney Plus is going to pass 200 million subscribers by end of year. They have 86 as of December. Just for context, they had originally when they launched, they said they were going to have between, I have it here because these are ridiculous numbers. They say they were going to have between 60 and 90 million by 2024. So they got to that before leaving 2020. And in Investor Day, they increased it to between 230 and 260 by 2024. I'm saying they're going to get to 200 by the end of this year. 
between the launches that are international, which some already started happening in like big countries like Latin America in the last month. The next six months, they have three Marvel shows coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, WandaVision starting next week, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and then Loki. All spaced by like two weeks. Yeah. One finishes, two weeks, the next one finishes. There is finally a reason to kind of have Disney+. Plus. There wasn't really before. We've right. talked about this. We're, uh, I guess we're writing about this. But I, I think Disney, Disney Plus is here to like pedal to the metal, turbocharge 200 million by the end of the year. Only Disney+, Plus, excluding Hulu and the ESPN+. Plus. Something that we haven't really talked about on here is that there's such a vacuum with the Marvel brand right now because just since uh, the Spider-Man movie two summers or some a year and a half ago, there hasn't been any real significant new Marvel content on screen. And I think having three shows kind of continuously running the tables back to back to back is going to really, really spur signups of like the, I guess, teenage to mid thirties demographic that is really lucrative that they probably don't quite have yet. I think they get there. I think they get there. I think they're going to do more than that. Let's see. Let's see how wrong I am. I mean, they're also expanding internationally and that'll help as well. Uh, if we if we include like the star stuff, like definitely probably over two hundred. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's gonna include, uh, I guess, just for context for everyone, Disney Plus in most of the international countries, excluding the U.S. and I think Latin America. I think Latin America is doing it differently. It's also gonna have this thing called Star Plus within Disney Plus, which is gonna include all the content from like. 20th Century Fox, Searchlight, even other Disney stuff, that it's not PG. So your yeah. Logans, your Ford versus Ferraris, your like just a ton of stuff. Even 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 TV shows that were done by the Fox Studio, even if they didn't get distributed in the Fox Studio. So like the Big Bang Theory, which is a CVS property, is gonna be in Disney Plus. So yeah, that's that's a pretty good deal. We should leave somewhere else. <laughs> I mean you can just get a VPN, but Disney Plus. I mean, I just run a VPN for my own privacy reasons, and uh, Disney Plus just like kind of blocks me every time I'm on a VPN. Just when I'm in America on my VPN, so that's probably not a big deal. I do have a quick question based on the very beginning of this prediction, or okay. just the the marvel of it all. Do you think that Netflix will ever move towards a releasing weekly model? for their content because they're really the only company that does that does the the binge drop now i think it would be crazy for them to not start experimenting more they did it for things like the great british bake-off which is a partnership with bbc they do it once a week in um, better call Saul, they co-produce it with amc in in international markets it released on a weekly basis at the same time that it came out in the u.s but when we talk about the biggest reason why we're so bearish on Netflix, so bearish, why we're bearish on Netflix is the lack of like cultural impact of the stuff that they release and how it's like a spike that lasts for three days. 
And it's two main reasons. The first one we've talked about is kind of quality, which still happens. They have some good stuff, but in general. But the second one, I think it's driven by this. Not having something so compressed where everything it's, might be very loud for a very short period of time and then it's completely mute until the next one comes out. I mean, The Mandalorian, everyone was talking about freaking Baby Yoda eating frog eggs for four months. I I think that's definitely they're gonna have to start experimenting with that just because competition's gonna be so crazy for mindshare. And I think something that happens right that's happened for decades at this point in film releases is studios are aware of the calendars of other studios and they're planning around them, so for example, like Wonder Woman 84 did not come out the same weekend as Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker because they know they're kind of cannibalizing each other's audiences. But traditionally, TV has always kind of operated more cyclically, kind of in the spring and fall. You have peaks and um, and valleys, and that's around ad sales and ad timelines. It's also around kind of the, the sports schedules as well. Mm-hmm. And... I think with the advent of streaming, a lot of that is loosening up and people are going for premium. So maybe it doesn't have to be as much tied to ad sales as others do. So I imagine we might start seeing these tentpole properties kind of counter-programmed against each other as well. So like Netflix isn't going to release a season of Stranger Things when Disney releases a season of The Mandalorian. Or they'll try and binge it all the weekend before The Mandalorian so that they own that week. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, the one, I think the one area where it's like clear why it makes sense for someone like Disney, but not to someone like Netflix, is just in order to do that and to and for that to have an impact, it needs to have such a strong brand name that people follow it, right? With The Mandalorian, most people would watch the episode in the next, like the three days when it launched. I don't know if Netflix has that, right? And maybe part of the reason why it was like, hey, come watch it, come binge it. It's kind of like, well, if it's bad, I can finish it in a day. Right. And Netflix gets kind of the bump of, oh, Carl watched 10 hours in a weekend versus, oh, he watched one hour and then nobody's watching the other episodes because nobody got hooked and there was no reason or, you know, next week there was something new. So I, I think there was something with HBO Max. Uh, didn't Wasn't a series called... Um, industry you know the one that Mm -hmm. was like around banking i think they released like the first two at the same time that they came out on tv and then they said all of it is up they just changed it and that's kind of i think it's it speaks to this right it's it's kind of a a worry or a it's a panicked reaction to oh we're putting all of the movies there let's also put tv shows so that people watch it but then did anyone really care about insecure it's going to make any difference if it's all at the same time that split, you know, mm-hmm. space by a week. So with Netflix, it might be, you know, with The Crown. It might be with Stranger Things. It might be with... I don't even know what else. <laughs> yeah. But that literally... I mean, they, they have enough that I think they could go week to week. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, look at me on publicly on this podcast with The Mandalorian, right? Like I watched an episode and was like, ah, cool, I... We'll just binge it later, right? That's a mentality that someone can actually have as a reaction to this. Um, 
Yeah, well, you say you only watched the first one, but you watched the first one and then you jumped all the way to the last 20 minutes of the last one to watch Luke Skywalker save Baby Yoda. I did. I, I, I got the abridged version of the show. I'll have to go back and, and, and watch more of it. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I bring this guy up a lot, but he is, to me, the smartest filmmaker around all of the evolution of how things are being produced and distributed right now, and that's Steven Soderbergh. And he said, um, after Logan Lucky came out, that uh, he just, with with Logan Lucky, he self-distributed the film and actually kind of made deals with the theaters and everything, and just, there was a lot of work, and he was trying to see if kind of you could independently kind of micro-distribute a film. And he said that the lesson he learned was that you know within the first few hours of Thursday night when a movie comes out, if it's going to make money in theaters or just kind of tank and it's just go on streaming. And he wow. said, like, at that point, he's like, why is there not just a button and, like, a clause with, with theaters and, and everything where if it's not playing well the first night and it doesn't really improve over the weekend, like, Warner can't just push a button and put it right on streaming and be really agile and have those deals in place. And I think that's such a smart and prescient thing to say, especially standing on the other side of that. And I think that's like a smart way to run it, like with industry or even down to a movie. Like maybe things aren't announced as day and date, but they just change them on the fly and change the marketing, like save face. Was that one of your bold predictions? I think that, that was not one of, of my sense. bold predictions. Like a lot of sense. <laughs> What's needed for that, I think, though, is that what you were saying, right? There has to be the deal so that if you push that button, you give something back to the theaters. But then I yeah. think the movie theaters probably need to have more programming. And maybe that just means, you know, put more old Star Wars and singing in the rain and Casablanca or whatever, like the concerts, and make going to the movies so different. We've talked about, right, in Mexico, they have Monday night football in the movie theaters. You yeah. can just go. And, and the lights are on and people are jumping and they do like gifts. And, you know, it's like you can watch the opera. I've, I think I've seen it in the U.S. also, like the Met mm -hmm. Opera on Sundays Live or whatever. And I think in order to get to that point, which I do think it makes sense, I think they need to start also investing into that, right? Just like a drive-in, right? In a drive-in, no. well, until this year, you never go watch a new movie. Find the things that make sense to go watch in a smaller, like in a... Oh, this thing is playing three times in this week. I want to go watch The Empire Strikes Back. I would love to do that. I never watched The Empire Strikes Back in a movie theater. Yeah. Hey, with... And that's kind of what drove my second prediction around like, MGM merging with someone. I kind of I kind of got bored with that prediction halfway through us talking about it because just like <laughs> it is kind of a smaller stakes company and I don't think you could stake an entire like content reputation on the MGM library. But it is, I think, interesting to have catalogs that are aligned with uh, with theaters. Or in the case of, like, if you are Disney and you own what used to be AMC theaters, you can self-distribute. And if something's doing poorly in a theater, you can pull it, throw up the old MCU back catalog, and just kind of read reframe things on the fly like that's a great way to run a theater business in, in, in this decade right and not only throw the mcu catalog saying hey over the next three weeks we're gonna play on saturdays and you can do the marathon over us you know like you can play around with these things yeah do you it could. fun 
Yeah. One of the funnest things I ever did in a drive-in is I went to watch Alice in Wonderland while, but instead of the audio of the movie, they played the Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. And it's one of those things that you listen online that is like a thing, yeah. but you kind of have to do it on your own. And then suddenly it's like, oh, it's the driving. Like, oh, that's going to be, like, that's different. Let's do it. It so, is, yeah. yeah. It's great. It's fun. I I love, I mean, I talk about it on the Draft House a lot. Um, I frequented even more some local theaters in Dallas when I was living there, or like the Stanford Theater in, in Palo Alto. There's all sorts of great theaters that uh, have, like, programming that's around the thing they're showing as well. And it's so fun to do stuff like that. That's, that's absolutely what's going to ha- come back, especially around uh, just having live events again. I don't know about you, but I'm going to like every concert I can as soon as we can do that again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To every restaurant. And to, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, bold prediction number three from Carl. What do you have? So... My final prediction is that we are going to see a massive transition of the gaming and effects artists uh, workforce from private workforces to unionized work- workforces. Okay. So that's spurred by a few things from this year. I mean, Google, it was announced earlier that, uh, a group of Googlers is, is joining the Communications Workers of America. I'm interested to see where that goes from here. That's kind of a huge fish to fry uh, for uh, that organization. But if you look at gaming effects artists, a lot of these are smaller studios or independent contractors and whatnot. So many, so many stories over the last few years of just people being worked to death because of something as silly as people hating how Sonic looks to something as in like as colossal as promising the coolest video game ever seven years ago and taking seven years to deliver it. I I think these are, are workforces that are so tangential to workforces in entertainment that are unionized that have been able to do things as powerful as challenge Warner brothers when going straight to streaming that I think we're going to see a lot of people attempt that and try that. And I'm just interested to see how that's supported, especially like Hollywood's kind of the only union town in the United States. I mean, of something that's like a services industry to that extent. Obviously we have union towns around like mining and and industrial resources and whatnot. So I don't know. That's my that would be interesting to take. See. I think I like when you teach me more about it because I don't know the structure of the industry, at least around the units. I mean, I know there are the guilds per types of work and how for even for actors is like you have to be a part of the guild to work for certain studios or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like I know Disney, I don't know if all of Disney or only animation, it's unionized. Yeah. It's a union. So I I want to learn more about this. Like, what's the structure today? Are most not, I guess, from based on your bold prediction. Yeah. But we can we can we so, can spend so a, most a, an episode talking about this. Most are not. Um, well, most of at least like effects, gaming, some animation, uh, any anything that's doing more with just like on screen talent. Basically, anything that existed in the 30s and 40s during the studio system is pretty much unionized. But other organizations are not. But you look at uh, look at Disney. 
something that's fascinating is Pixar is non-union, but Disney is union. So, right. Then that comes from just like the impetus of it being like Steve Jobs' company and founded in the eighties. It just it was a, a different time for for workforces and how like thinking around that. And with that. I mean, that means like Pixar and Disney can't share animators. So if something's going in overtime at Disney, they can't just pull people from the Pixar movie coming out in three years and put them on the, the pipeline. Like they just can't do that. And it becomes, it becomes interesting to, to work across those boundaries. And that's so that like Pixar animators don't take Disney animators jobs. I and mean, that's like the, the mindset of the Disney unionized employees. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain of like who would do this or what wouldn't necessarily happen or even if any of them are successful but i think there will be more and more attempts especially as you're seeing more and more attempts across big tech players as well we should we should do an episode of this or anything i mean frankly it's something that i i don't know as much as i could or should but yeah it complicates every aspect of movie making is that you have to make unions happy that's fun that's a good one it's a final final prediction yeah i was gonna have this very smooth transition speaking of work related situations and expectations (laughs) in the entertainment industry that was very smooth my last poll prediction which kind of goes against uh, my first one i have to do something with theme parks Thank you. So my prediction is that Disneyland, the original Magic Kingdom, is not going to reopen until at least September. Uh, I know this is not as interesting. As I said, I had my bold prediction last week was that uh, TikTok was going to buy Quibi for between 50 and 100 million, but that got burned to the ground. Uh, oh, I shouldn't have said that with a capital on Wednesday. That didn't happen. Uh, so I'm going to say that Disneyland is not going to reopen until September. Uh, a couple of reasons. COVID in the US is going to last between the amount of the lack of response all year and just the way people reacted. This is not going to weigh quickly. The vaccine rollout, even if it was, you know, like quick and agile, people like Carl and I wouldn't get it until like maybe June or July, maybe. And it's going significantly slow, lower than that. And just California being the, you know, you can say careful, you can say way too careful, you can say health conscious or whatever state that it is. I don't see how with the precedent that they set during this year that they didn't reopen during like, you know, August, September mm-hmm. when it wasn't as bad. I just don't see it happening, which is uh, the saddest thing for me is the jobs of the people that work there yeah. and how that has been completely shut off now for 10 months almost. And the amount of people, not only in Disneyland, but like in the surroundings, which is all built around this ecosystem, it's pretty sad. And I, I wish we had a, you know, a solution, but uh, that's a sad bold prediction to close to. I should have done it first. But hey, we'll just go hang out in Defunct Land in VR. And mm-hmm. It serves the purpose. I mean, I guess all of Disneyland right now is Defunct Land in its own way. Yeah. September's a good guess. I wouldn't guess anything significantly before that. Uh, it 
the rollout I imagine is going to speed up after January 20th, if only because it sounds like they're actually going to prioritize and send out, sending out all the doses rather than um, kind of stage them for first and second doses. Um, they're trying to figure out the how they're they're rolling things out right now. But it, that said, I don't think it'll be significant again, especially in Los Angeles. I think LA yeah. will be one of the last, probably just based on population density, is one of the last counties to be like fully vaccinated to that extent. And also, Disneyland is a locals park. I don't remember exactly how many people, like what the breakdown is of people that come, but it's much different than Florida. Like somebody who got vaccinated in the UK can probably plan a family vacation to Florida in June and be fine. Whereas probably not going to do that to to LA for Disneyland. And then you don't want locals going if they're not being vaccinated. So I think it's all going to come down to how California handles it. But Disney is going to do exactly what California says they can do. Yeah. And with the crazy people in Orange County, they should just say, Gavin Newsom should just say, well, you want to go to Disneyland? Take the vaccine. Very true. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly where. They can, uh, they can have a cast member uh, in Mickey Mouse here take the vaccine. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's about right. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I hope this becomes a, a tradition. We set some bold predictions every year. And then we should, we should hold ourselves accountable. Hey, a not bold prediction is that we'll still be recording next year. We'll still be doing oh, this. Cool. Not Next bold. year is now 2022, so love it. Perfect. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, that's all we that's all we got. In the last episode of 2020, when we talked about the fav- fav- our favorite things from the year, we converted that into a blog post on Medium. You can find it in, in our Twitter. We'll probably do the same with these uh, bold predictions. Of course, if you want to get the whole context, the whole context is here. But just uh, so you know, if you can't listen to the to the podcast from time to time we're gonna put some of the some of the content there and we'll keep reminding you in our social media platform so remember to to follow us there yeah please remember to rate and review and subscribe we will be back next week with a episode that's probably a little bit more timely with the news and i'm for one i'm excited to see what develops in the next week and a half on every front of every news site <laughs> Of every news. Oh my god. All right. We're gonna be uh, are we gonna be back post January twentieth? Our next episode will probably be dropping on January twentieth. Okay. A lot of things. I'm excited for you guys to listen to the next episode, which will be a nice distraction from whatever inauguration day is. Until then, thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.